0: The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Things We All Carry. Today I'm joined by Kevin. Kevin's a volunteer from the eastern shore of Maryland. He sheds a different light on mental health from a volunteer's perspective. I first learned of Kevin through the Objectionables page on Instagram. He was a weekly contributor to a couple of challenges I would hold. Late this winter, I was in Maryland with a friend for a Whiskey Meyer show. Sitting in a bar passing time before the show, I get a message. It reads, hey brother, if you're around, there's a ticket waiting for you at Will Call. Turns out we were at the same spot, in the same place, at the same time, and I moved my pregame to the spot where Kevin and his twin brother were hanging out. We talked for a bit and then went on to enjoy the concert. It was a pleasure getting to know Kevin some, and we've stayed in touch since. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram, at thethingsweallcarry, or email thethingsweallcarry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Enjoy the show. You don't have to. We don't have to wait till the end because on Instagram you're at the Unpaid Professional, correct?
1: Yes, uh, at the Unpaid
0: Professional. Yep. All right, so well, let's go ahead and get this thing going, and, and we'll talk. You ready? I'm ready. This evening, we're sitting down with Kevin. He's coming to us from Maryland. He is a volunteer. Kevin, how long have you been a volunteer? Twelve years. So, there you go. You hear it for yourself. He's been a volunteer for 12 years. He works a full-time job on the outside he's a family man. And I'd like to give him a chance to give you some of his history and introduce himself. And let him talk about some family stuff and some professional stuff. And then we will break into his story and uh, what he's doing in his life now. So. Mike's yours.
1: All right. Thanks. Thanks, Stack. I appreciate you having me on and I'm happy to share my story with you and just hope that it helps someone out there to not feel alone. You know?
0: Yeah, that's that's definitely the goal is to, to connect with other people so other people realize what's going on.
1: Exactly. Exactly. There's you know too many people that, that are think they're going through things alone or that their their traumas are, are unique, but everyone struggles and I don't want anybody to feel like career or volunteer that the the things you're going through or the feelings are feeling they're the only ones who've ever felt that way because they're not Man.
0: so why don't you tell us a little bit about your family i know that you're close to your family and you you, you live where you live because of your family
1: correct yeah mom and dad um, they celebrated 50 years last year of marriage so Still together and very supportive of myself and my twin brother growing up, afforded me a lot of opportunities that I wouldn't have had they, you know, not worked as hard as they did to to support my brother and I, and luckily was able to go to college and got my degree and came back home and started making a life here on the shore. So I got into the volunteer service at 25, which is late for most families. Most guys here that volunteer start as a cadet and, and work out, but as you'll find out there, I, I moved back and was kind of looking for a sense of purpose and uh, feeling a community and it, the volunteer service allowed me to do that and uh, I've continued to do that and I feel like through our service, we're able to give back to our communities and help those around us and at the at the, the heart of it, I, I think all of us career volunteer, in you know, a just
0: want to help people we're helpers yeah we're all definitely helpers and we all think we can fix it yes
1: yes that's it we're helpers fixers a lot of volunteers have skills or and i'm sure prior to entering career service you know a lot of the career guys had skilled jobs whether it be carpenter or welder or what have you so we're we're working with our hands and you know we're, we're trying to fix things and i feel like that innately, we bring that fixer aspect into the fire service. I just,
0: I, I'm going to digress here a little bit. Cause I just had this conversation at work yesterday. We, we do have a number of people that, that had, had skilled jobs. And I think any job is really skilled to be honest with you, but they had the mm-hmm. the trades. And, <laughs> and then we have a couple, we've had rookies come in that had no experience, no life experience, no job experience. And, and you're able to kind of mold them the way you, you want to mold them and then I, there's a subset I think as well because I didn't have a trade, but I had I worked with I worked with kids and adults with autism, so I worked with people, and so in a sense I was still trying to be a fixer. I just didn't fix with my hands. I just fixed with these these kids and these families. So it's it's a very interesting point. I like that you made it.
1: And and look, hats off to you. My my wife's a special ed teacher, and she deals with a lot of kids being. It- all across the spectrum, but she's got a couple that are definitely on the autism spectrum. And, and look, dealing with people is still a skill, you know, whether it be people with disabilities or just people in daily life. And from working with those with autism and on those things, that how quickly they can escalate. So our calmness and, and the way we handle and conduct ourselves is even more important. Yeah.
0: I agree with that completely. All right. So, where were you about your family history?
1: So, no, mom and dad still, still married happily. And I'm fortunate in in that regard that they're here for me and my wife. And they're just an awesome resource. I I can't thank them enough for that. I have really no outlying traumatic family events or anything. Very loving and supportive family. And we all have our little quirks, but overall, I'm blessed. You know, my brother, twin brother, is uh, also in the fire service. We, joined together in, in 2009 at the volunteers and he since, works for a paid department, both of us being in the fire service together has also been helpful because we are able to be there for each other and and understand each other. So uh, automatically having someone to uh, navigate tough calls and thoughts and feelings with is definitely helpful. And he's my ace in the hole in, in that regard.
0: Hey, tell me a little bit about your town you're living, in, because I know that plays a part in your fire service.
1: We are small town and 896 people, roughly. I think our, our population is roughly the same size it was in the 1800s. I hate to, to say the cliche, one's born and one does, but we're about the same. We're, we're about 20, 25 minutes from everywhere, you know, from larger cities and, and it's uh, turned into a bedroom community you know, it was once a shipbuilding ag- agrarian economy. And, and now we're a, a bedroom community in, in that regard. And just a nice, quiet place to live down by the water.
0: How did you find what, well, excuse me, before we get into that, cause I was going to discuss the the fact that how long your family's been in the area. Cause I think we talked about that last time.
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah. So there's records of, people in in my family being in this area all the way back into the 1860s. And we verified that through historical documents and the map makers put out an atlas of landowners of the area and was published out of Philadelphia. And And we've got a hard copy of that. And it was astounding to be able to find that and trace that lineage on that. You said you went to college. What year did you go to college? I graduated in 2007. Yeah, with a bachelor's degree in communication and a minor in business admin.
0: So where do you go after you graduate college?
1: I moved back to the shore and substitute, taught for a little while and ended up landing a job with a local beverage distributor in middle management. And I was there, I started there in 2008 and I substitute taught three or four months and ended up landing that job and yep. while I was working there is, uh, when I got into the fire service.
0: Okay. So let's jump into that. How did you find yourself into the fire service?
1: So December 23rd of 2009, I was there at my house and I was getting ready to go to work and was coming to the end of a road in my relationship with my um, long time girlfriend at the time, you know, high school sweetheart type thing, and thought we were going to settle down and get married together. And, and that came to an end. And the, the Christmas tree went out the front door with me, and
0: Christmas got canceled that year. So you left the house and took the Christmas tree with you?
1: Drug it right down the stairs. Okay. And, and probably not one of my shining moments, but that's how it went down. And we had been trying to put lipstick on the pig so to speak and it just wasn't working out and it came to the point where someone had to pull the trigger and it was was, that day it was me and I don't think she was capable of it and I was just like I've had enough yeah and then my fire service parallel with with that day was that evening late in the evening there was a little girl in the area that was uh, abducted by a acquaintance of the aunt and we This was all just found out later, of course, that Christmas Eve, law enforcement kind of searched and was going on leads. And Christmas day, 2009, they uh, put out a call for volunteers to look for this young girl. And I don't know if you've ever seen thousands of people at a stadium lined up to go do a a search for a missing kid, but it's pretty powerful. You you could definitely feel um, a, a desperate hope. And that crowd of all the people who had pretty much said, it's not about me today. It's about finding this little girl and trying to bring her home. And we did, we went out and, and did a area search. Um, I was wearing chest sweaters, walking through ditches and through briars, and we were desperately looking to, uh, find this underage female. And we searched everywhere. And when we cleared our grid, I was like, man, I don't know what to do because we, we didn't find any sign and ended up going back to the staging area. And I went, I found a, a sheriff's deputy that I knew and actually got up on the mobile command post and and was trying to talk him into letting me go out again with another group, trying to find another grid that hadn't been searched. And I could tap this on the shoulder. Hey, look, you know, we're going to suspend the civilian search. And we're just going to go ahead and keep it to law enforcement and fire. And okay, I was, my brother and I were walking out and saw some guys that we knew that were local and, and they were all there with the fire department. And they said, Hey, where are you guys going? I said, we're well, sending somebody home and today you're with us. And I was, I, I hit me like, wow, like I've known these guys all my life, but they're taking a in. So we literally go in and stage with them. And it was at that point that we stood around for probably 20 minutes, and waiting. And they called it, they said, we've got one area we're going to send the, just the law enforcement back out to, and they ended up finding her and knowing what I know now and the condition she was, she was found, I'm glad that we didn't find her that way. She had been raped and set on fire while she was still
0: alive when they Located her, they determined that post-mortem through autopsy. That's a, that's a hell of a thing to take in.
1: It was, and and not so much through, you know, anything. I walked through the woods, but I feel, I feel bad for the guys who, who had to find her in that state. It was heavy and it was powerfully moving to see so many people there from all over and dogs and four wheelers and ATVs and I think... Probably the three closest air assets in the yeah. air, hovering, looking, and powerful to say the least. Yeah, I say air assets. There's at least one Maryland State Police chopper and at least one DSP trooper uh, unit. Actually, I think they had both of them out there. So it, it was a lot, man. It was intense. It was, uh, and of course, then what do you do when it's over? She's been located. Now what? You know, you go home and that's how you spend the rest of your Christmas day. And you know, just, you know, just thinking about it and me, newly alone, I can't even really rem- remember what I did after that. Cause after that, it, it didn't really matter to be honest. That was the vibe of the day. There's no egg dog that's going to pop you back from that. Yeah, I was, uh. Christmas in 2009. And and after that, my brother and I looked at each other, man, what do you think about the fire department? And he called me, I think, and he's like, Hey man, I was thinking. And he was like, Hey, I've been thinking too. And, and it was almost like we almost finished the sentence for each other. Like, yeah, let's do it. And so applied and was accepted. Loaded in and went through, um, got pump operator training and firefighter one, and two, hazmat. You know, technical, uh, high angle and vehicle rescue, Instructor One, EMR, all those, you know, classes, of course, going through. And of course, while well, running calls and learning with my station and, and training with the guys, and it was exactly what I needed. The fire service was exactly what I needed at that time to give me a, a sense of purpose and belonging at a point in my life where yeah, I really felt like besides going in and putting in time for the company I was working for, I was laundering and I felt like I didn't have a purpose and it's shaped my life thus far. and you know, Because it's, 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 a lot. It's, you're able to be called anytime you're available and you drop family dinners or birthday parties or, you know, dinner with the wife to, to go and serve others and I mean, for me, I, I think of the ability to serve our community and the neighboring, neighboring community. To me, that's an honor
0: to, to be entrusted with that. So how long was all the training for you?
1: So the training is done through uh, MIFRI, Maryland Fire Rescue Institute. Firefighter one in Maryland is 120 hours or was when I went through it. And then firefighter two is an additional, uh, I can't remember the course requirement, so it's done nights, weekends, nights, weekends. And of course you get that certification through MIFRI, which you can then take on and go ahead and have certifications for your classes. But that's how the training is done. So, and MIFRI has training sites throughout Maryland, burn buildings, all the things you would see at a training site. It's just nights and weekends instead of an academy style.
0: Okay. So that's your training 2009. when, when does that finish for you? When are you a functioning member of the company?
1: So. <clears throat> once once I got my firefighter one I was able to go ahead and actually do more than support activities and then of course as the class comes available you could take it and you build onto that cert I'm trying to remember when I took uh, and I'm almost ashamed to say that I'm trying to remember the the end date of the last class I took but you can always add on those certifications and and add on more certifications so you know i The first class I got was fire one. Then you take fire two, you take pump operator. I had CDOs already coming in. So actually I think the first class I took was pump operator Yeah, because I already had CDOs. And My justification to the chief, I took it was, Hey, I may not be able to go in there yet, but I know how to drive that. And I want to know how to, to get water for you guys that way we can do that. And again, any way I could just to help. You know, and then fire one, fire two, rescue tech for vehicle machinery, hazmat awareness and operations level, and just continuing to go on as the class becomes available. It's set up like a college schedule because it's administered out of college part. The volunteer service is different in the regard that you have to make the time to take the class and the schedule. I took leave time with the job I was working initially to uh, actually even be able to get my certs and to be able to to do the live burns on the weekends and stuff like that because my
0: work hours included weekend hours. Yeah, that's quite a commitment. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about your time at the volunteer house. How does that progress? Really,
1: volunteers as needed. So My, my joke with our newly hired medic was, you know, there, there are two, <laughs> there are two speeds here. It's it's bullshit or it's oh shit. That's a lot. And it said in just, but it's true. We joke in you know, a small town, but either it is, and, and I hate to lessen anything by saying BS or mundane, but it's uh you know, it's a, it's a run of the mill. It's a medical or holy crap. That's a, she's getting ready to respiratory arrest or, oh, wow. That's a minor auto accident. It's a fender bender. Or, oh, wow. That's a uh, roll over with partial ejection or, you know, that's a working fire. There's not a lot of in-between
0: here. So, you know, so quite a bit of feast or famine.
1: Yeah, Yeah. When it's on and you know, it and you almost have to, you, you gotta be ready for it all the time, not that anyone's not ever ready for it, but it's gotta be right there in the back of your mind. Like, hey, don't sleep on this because we may get here and it may be totally different than than what dispatch is portraying, and I mean, I feel like all of us are are in that regard. but he, you better be ready, <laughs> yeah, because you may have mutual aid coming from a ways out. You may have you may not have staffing. You don't have a, a guaranteed staffing level, so you may have three guys on the engine, or you could have three rigs rolling full. It just depends on time of day and work schedules, and and who's around
0: and i know you identified some calls that you wanted to talk about and how they affected you and so why don't we just talk about some of those calls for right now
1: and we had talked uh, about the glass analogy and and i'll talk about you know, how that came up but these calls i highlight not to try and highlight my service or to go go look at the things this guy's seen the, these were the things in my glass when i realized that my glass was starting to overflow and i'm very thankful and I'm very, very fortunate to to have been given that analogy and, and to be able to take that and use that as a tool for my own introspection and analysis and, and saying, hey, where am I at? The, the first call I remembered sticking out in my time came in 2010. So I hadn't been in real long. It was reported as a single non-breathing. And we happened to have fire department fundraiser softball tournament going on. Most of the guys were all together in two and a half blocks from the station. And this call comes out, a friend of mine, who's a paramedic. And I, we jump right in my truck and we start heading up the street towards the firehouse. And I looked at him, I said, do you want to get the rig or do you want to go direct to the scene? And he said, no, when you stop at the stop sign, my friend was in the back, he said, he'll hop out, he'll grab the ammo, he said, you and I go, um, so we roll in, pull up, you know, just past the address and in the yard, there's a 4 year old girl, approximately four. And the words I hear her saying standing in the front yard is mommy won't wake up. And so make our way into the house and get upstairs and find female patient laying on the bed and she's gray, but she's warm and our medic Starts immediately, uh, pulls her from the bed down to the floor and starts doing chest compressions. And our first thought was CO. Yeah, we're not thinking at this time of opioids or, or anything like that, or prescriptions or, or anything like that. first thing I did was crank a window open and there was a probably a 90 pound Labrador wandering around upstairs and I uh, grabbed him I locked the dog in the bathroom. And about that time, our on-duty paramedic arrived from the station uh, on the ambulance with with my buddy who had grabbed it. And they checked one of the back bedrooms downstairs and found a second unresponsive patient, adult male. And they hollered, Hey, we've got another one and swap compressions and just keep working them. And out of that, the male subject lived the female, then we were unable to to get her back and it ended up being a uh, prescription overdose. And that was in 2010, you figure the opioid crisis here, that was the, the first time it it became a reality. And uh, that four-year-old girl in the yard, I don't think I'll ever forget her face or, or just her little voice saying, mommy won't wake up. Mommy won't wake up and, and that was because I had a a cousin who was battling those demons at the time. And I remember very vividly after that call, just thinking, I I hope that that's not something that I have to deal with for him, you know? one of the, the things in the fire service that one of my instructors told me on very early on, and I asked it off is like, you will respond for people as a volunteer and even as paid, but more so in a volunteer service where you're serving where you live. And that was the first one that I was like, man, that, that stuck with me. and know,
0: uh, it, it lingered, you know. And I think that's why I specifically asked about where you live, because that does affect you. And that's exactly what I was referencing is the fact that because you're so entrenched in the area, you, you have those connections and you have the knowledge of people and, and there is a higher risk that you're going to run somebody that you know.
1: A- absolutely. Absolutely. And you have to be able to provide that same level of service and then process the personal one later as I won't say cold, but it's a reality because at that point, even though. Those people are known to you. They need you for every skill that you've ever picked up just to that point. They're counting on you. Yeah, definitely. Definitely lets reality hit home there. And then kind of the second event that's been an impact for me was February 26, 2011. uh, The person I considered my my mentor in the fire service was killed in a motor vehicle accident that actually our department got called to respond to and just, he was one of those guys, if you had a problem, he knew it when you walked in the door and uh, he's like, man, talk to me, what's up? And joining the fire service where I did and and the point I was in, in my life, uh, he helped me a ton. He, I'm not ashamed to say it, I had some suicidal thoughts in, in my dark time and it was his words that got me from, from, and And when that call came in, I was getting ready to go to work and we had kind of a rash of false alarms and being canceled on the response from that jurisdiction. And I was like, oh man, it's just, it's another BS call. It's another BS call that we're going to end up being canceled on. And I remember squelching the pager and you know, I it was an old minute or two. And I hit the button on the top and, and squelched it. And went back to sleep or tried to, and I ended up getting ready, going into the office and, and getting my guys ready and getting them going. And probably about seven o'clock in the, in the morning the so it was about two and a half hours after initial call, my phone rings. And it's the girl I'm dating at the time, my wife now. And she said, are you sitting down? And I just remember thinking, yeah, I, I, yeah I'm walking to my truck. What's up? I'm getting ready and hit the road. And I've got customer visits and things like that I have to make. And she said that call this morning, she said it was Rick. And I was like, it, my knees, my knees buckled and I cried on my knees in that parking lot for, it was probably two, two and a half minutes. And I got my, got myself together and walked in the office and our division manager happened to be there, which was odd. And he could tell immediately that something was wrong. And he said, what's going on? And, uh, I told him uh, a friend of mine had been killed. And he said, go ahead and, and split up what you were going to do today and just go ahead and take the rest of the day. And I got in my, I got in my uh, vehicle and went home and crawled up the stairs to my apartment and it just the emotion that hit me, like knowing in no walking in that I was going to have to see her and knowing that she had just made. One of the toughest phone calls that she had ever made, I'm sure, that, that was hard. And then the next 10 days were a blur until until we got him laid to rest. And the the guilt about having not responded, and I remember that I, I came home and changed clothes and, and got up to the station and walking into the firehouse and hearing the sound of your brother
0: sobbing in different corners of the firehouse. That's, that's a hard one.
1: That's a hard one. And then I have, and, and will carry the guilt that's, uh, I never got to tell him that he saved my life. That's uh that is one that I carry and always will. I was able to tell his father, he and I are close and I see him often. And I just try and impress upon him what, what a gift his, his son was to me and what he meant to me as a friend and he meant a lot to everybody in our department he was an outstanding leader and a good friend and we miss him very much we still uh, gather on the 26th of february
0: every year so when uh trying to frame this question correctly in a career department, when something like that happens, they at least give lip service and they give a hot wash as, as they like to call it. And we, you, give people the chance to talk, not everybody talks, but what's it look like for a volunteer unit when something like that happens or when something like the, the four-year-old saying mommy won't wake up, is there an opportunity for that or, so, or do you deserve lives? We have a, an, our
1: chief. God love it. He is, he's been pretty proactive in that incident and as well as the other traumatic incidents as far as having the critical incident stress management team come in. And these people are, they're people you, you don't know. They're not members of your department. They're at fire service, EMS, or I don't think any of them were law enforcement, but and they all you know have gone through the, the citizen training and yeah, they shut us down. We had... Mutual aid coverage, our, our mutual aid station that, that we run a with there, they were here probably, they were here before lunchtime. It was like, they threw a crew of guys together and got over here and they shot us down. And we were, guys were, you know, sweeping and cleaning and trying to keep our hands busy. Because if our hands were moving and we had something in front of us, then we were, we weren't necessarily thinking maybe we were, it was just doing a task, having something to do felt at that time. And luckily those guys came and were just like, go wait for the SISM team. Like we, we got this. And every department that came in was absolutely outstanding. And the the SISM team let us all talk and share things about our brother. We were thinking that we were feeling and everyone was able to speak and share. And it was a wonderful tool at that time, especially having, having not had anything like that go on. And I think after that we've been more able to use this as a team and feel like, you know, it's a viable resource for us so that. It, and and that's appreciated from everyone. It, it, that's the feeling that I get. Anyway, I don't get anyone that's ever walked out of a SISM briefing or debrief, whatever you want to call it, and said, "Man, that was horse crap." Like anyone who's felt generally and, and shared genuinely, I, I feel like it's helped, and we all continue to be there for each other. But that SISM team really just lets everyone
0: pour out that raw emotion right then. I think what something you said in there is key and i want to talk about it it's not i don't necessarily think it's this the format it's the schism itself i think i think it's what you said it's they share and they share honestly and openly And, and i think that's the key and that or therein lies the issue because. You don't always get that when people want to, or when people want to do a debrief, a a sism or a hot wash, you don't always get that openness. And I think that's what we want to encourage.
1: Definitely. And I think that our ability to have that openness and to utilize that tool comes with our own ability to own our thoughts, feelings, and
0: emotions. Oh, definitely. It's all a process, obviously. And, and we, we all need to learn how to do it. I, I damn well need to learn myself how to do it still. So I agree with that.
1: And, and it's about being in tune and going, am am I avoiding this or am I just maybe me sharing, like us sharing our, our stories with you. I hope it motivates someone else to say, you know what, even if I don't go on a podcast and talk about these things, maybe I share it with someone else. And by sharing it, we own that and we're able to accept it and, and cope and, and move on. You know, no different than speaking with a therapist or any other mental health professional, because in, until saying, when you say it, you have to own it. Um, that's, that's the, that's the tough part. You know, it's, it's owning that I feel this way or this made me feel this
0: way. I think. Um, Ownership is tough, but I in in many cases I think identif- identifying that feeling is tough. Absolutely. So I know there's another call. It was I believe July of 2012. Yeah,
1: yeah, July 2012. Being on the East Coast, you you know what summers are like and hot humid days and
0: yeah, just nasty.
1: Yeah. And you feel like you could ring the air out. And it was one of those kind of days. And we got called, we do have a, a Marine component and a dive team. We got called to uh, help and, uh, and what we knew ultimately would end up being a recovery of three, uh, boys swimming in the creek. And one went in, they all were swimming and one had trouble and he and the, unfortunately they all tried to save each other and everyone uh, unfortunately perished. And so we came in with our dive team and set up across this, this, it's a Creek at that point, it's narrow, but it ends up widening out further downstream. And we set up right by the, the closure still on the ground, but everything was still right there and we literally put a ladder down in for the, the guys to walk down into the water and set our our lineup. And one of the divers kicked back to see his fins and adjust them and the last missing young man floated up and just about hugged him arms out face down and so i 2012 i was i'm not a diver i'm not a member of that unit but i was on shore support and we lowered the stokes basket down in to to get him out and as we're pulling him up he's so little he starts to slide out and i had to i was at the foot and i had to set the foot down and, and grab his ankles to keep him from sliding back down the bank towards the body of water and when i did i i grabbed his his ankles and feeling that warm gone skin and i instinctively just looked down in his eyes and just the look of of terror on his face it, it was uh something i definitely won't forget and i learned my lesson that day about uh, drowning victims and not looking in their eyes just the, the look on his eyes and his face was was not peaceful and that one he came back probably a month later uh, and when I say he came back I was at a fundraiser and uh, it was a, a ride that was running and I, there was a little boy on the ride and he's saying mommy look at me but I'm not seeing him I ended up seeing the the face of the young man who passed away on him and I just remember thinking Wow, that's, that's odd. That one came back, right? But none of the calls, the, the previous ones I had mentioned it really stuck with me, but this one, for me to skew his face again, it, it had never happened before. And I was like, oh wow, that's, that's odd. That was the first red flag. And I, I didn't, I didn't pursue it any farther. I was just like, kind oh, of maybe, maybe this is normal. Maybe this happens. Deep down inside, Knowing it wasn't normal, but you know, not really having a frame of reference was, yeah, uh, you know, just packed it up and kept moving on. And 2010, uh, I'm sorry, 2012, October 2012, my dad and my brother got CO poisoning and responded to that. Neighboring departments called, of course, going down. Uh, we were having a hurricane at that time. Uh, I can't remember which one it was, named Storm that affected the area heavily with a lot of flooding. And my father had a generator running and he thought he had it ventilated well enough and went to check on it. And my dad went down. My brother was able to get him out before he then went down. And I ended up responding into that and finding my my dad and my brother, you know, in the house waiting for the ambulance. The neighbor had heard my brother hollering for help. And, and his wife at the time had heard him holler for help through this storm. I don't know how, but they were able to get him into the house and go ahead and call 911 and, and get him there. And it's real, man. You pull up at the the place you grew up and you have so many happy memories and you're responding there for your loved ones. And once we got them loaded, I looked at the chief at the time. I was actually riding with two departments in this neighboring department I was riding with them as well. I looked at him. I'm like, Hey, give me a bottle. I'm like what? And I'm like, give me a bottle. I need to go in there and shut this down. And I need to go in there and get CO readings. Let's go. Let's go to work. And we were able to get those readings. And then I went on, met him over at the hospital.
0: And again, that goes back to what we talked about earlier with the the fact that you're volunteering in your community, and that's where your family lives. Absolutely. And, and absolutely and and i i know that from talking to you that this this story ends well because your brother and your father both recover but yeah, they went yeah but that still takes a toll because a you responded to him and b the what if
1: oh absolutely um, i i remember distinctly my brother was uh, he was in the er and being a provider himself just being critical of the staff there. And I just remember feeling like, man, what are you doing? So I walked out and I grabbed the charge nurse and I looked at him and I said, Hey, based on his CO levels that we sent to you over the radio, how much longer? He said, what? I said, how much longer did he have before he was out to, he said, five minutes, maybe. And just the relationship that my brother and I have we come right to the chase with each other. And I remember looking at him, I remember going, Hey, an asshole, what would you do with five more minutes? he said what i said nurse says that's about how long you got so calm down and think about your five minutes and he dialed it back from 10 to about seven but yeah yeah Yeah,
0: uh, Seven's still pretty much an asshole level uh and i'll say that just because i met your brother
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah and he's not always that way I, i i Apologize for that, but yeah, he's no, he's no. You don't have to apologize for him at all. Yeah, But yeah, yeah. So definitely, responding in the area you live definitely gives you a uh, a different uh, kind of appreciation for you know, the people in your area and your service to it. And for me, ultimately, the the gratitude to to be able to do it. I'm fortunate in that regard that that I am able to help those around me. And not to get off track, but it goes to what we're talking about, my uncle, who was a non-Vet and served with the Army Security Agency in support of MAGV, which was Military Assistance Command, Vietnam, and, and Song, the guys who were going into Cambodian lives, as a radio operator for them, shortly before he died, he and I were you know, just talking in his yard, and he looked at me and he said, I don't envy you. That's why is that? He said, my war ended when I left Vietnam yours is every day you never know and that hit me like a ton of bricks i was like what for a, a guy that i had always held in in such regard to say that to me was was humbling and as i i looked at it more he's right for first sure responders our wars it's every day not the downplay or less than the military service in any regard but we just don't know and if you don't think about it in that regard and stay mindful that there will be things that kind of creep back in, then you can
0: quickly find that glass overflowing. So I know we're going to talk about that glass. Cause I think that glass is a, it's a powerful analogy. I believe there was one more thing you wanted to talk about. And I think it happened in 2015. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken.
1: That's right. This is the one that, that kind of helped me see that my Latch was uh, was getting fuller or filled my glass up to that point March of 2015 we get called the dispatch here calls it out for ALS assist so we know they need a paramedic and that was one of those nights where he You just have a night where sometimes you're like, man, I'm on edge. I don't know why I can't sleep. I'm up. I was cleaning my refrigerator. I was taking everything out of my refrigerator at two o'clock in the morning and cleaning it deep clean, just like it was two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. And the call comes out for mutual aid medical. And so we get to the station and roll out on the medic unit and heading down a back country road. And not really seeing anything, checking for addresses. And I remember getting close and being like, oh man, all the houses are dark here and we must be getting close. And sure enough, you pull up and there's a pole that's cut off and we can see that. And it's arcing that blue, just electric blue transformer arc. And it's, it seems going from just the headlights and then kind of the AMBO lights, this really bright, intense blue light, and we hop out and Start walking up, and I remember seeing a car that, from the front, looks fine. And I'm like, "Okay, why are we here? This seems mundane." And as I come around the front of the car, the first thing I saw was the B pillar, and there's probably eight to twelve inches of intrusion on that B pillar. And I remember seeing blood, blood down the down the side of the car, and uh, gray matter. What I found out that it later was gray matter. And that's the first time that I heard our female, she's going, is she dead? Is she dead? And I look up and I see her standing next to a law enforcement officer and he's got one male in handcuffs. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Look to the right and there's three more teenagers separating a different group. And I find the mutual aid ambulance crew there over on the other side, the guys who had called for us for ALS, and they're standing by the side of the road and I'm the first one that walked up and they said, can you pronounce And I turned around and the medic. I said, no, I can't, but, but he can. And as he walks over, they rolled the sheet back and her head was just absolutely smashed and we found out later that her head had been Between the pole and the B pillar, as best we can figure, with these six kids riding in a car, she was sitting on her best friend's lap and the best friend was the female who was standing next to the law enforcement officer. And, And her chorus of help my friend changed to, is she dead? Is she dead? Is she dead? Is she dead? And when our medic pronounced it just crying screaming just absolute pandemonium and when that happens i noticed that she is covered in blood from her waist down where her friend had slid down underneath the driver's sheet and her head had been in her lap and we loaded her and transported her. Today we would call it excited delirium in our protocols, but transported her to the hospital and just so she could get some help and some intervention there. And that was a 27-minute transport time as we're a little farther out from the hospital. And that course of, oh my God, and help my friend, and I can't believe she's gone, definitely continued the entire time you couldn't have shot a better kind prim, of promise video like if, if someone had told me about it i said no nah, man you're lying that, that's something that would be staged that nah, 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 that was it and i just remember getting back from the hospital and, and sitting there with one of the emts who had went with us and sitting on the bumper of the engine and saying, so, man you want home he goes nah i'm gonna wait for sunrise and wait for my daughter to get up and we just sat there together on the
0: on the engine and what did he do after that you know i think what he said was perfect no i'm gonna wait for sunrise i'm gonna wait for till my daughter wakes up yeah because
1: his daughter was about that same age he Again, you you find a lot of personal connections, even sometimes unintentionally, in these calls that we run that, that kind of give it meaning for you. And I just remember all that next day we went to um, went to a fundraiser for another department and there were drinks and beer and all you could eat, beef and everything else. And I just remember wandering through that day. And that night we came home I didn't even drink. I didn't want beer. Like I tried one and it just did I'm like, nah, I can't. I can't even, I just was not in the mood for that. And I said, and I said, and I'm like, there's no way I can sleep. I, I just, I can't process this. Wasn't thinking of, of hurting myself or, or anything like that. I just, I, I couldn't process it. And I pulled out my phone and I, I just Googled first responder help and 800 safe call, I found them. And I looked at the number for a while and I'm just like, is this going to help? Are these people going to tell me just to suck it up and move on or what's going to happen? And I'm like, you know what, forget it. I'm calling. And I called and spoke with a lady from Washington state. She was at the time she had retired law enforcement and had 25 years on the job. And she said, Kevin, your glass is full. And that hit me. I mean, like a ton of bricks, I'm like, you know, I had always, I, I thought I was packing stuff up in the, in the neat little boxes. But in reality, my glass was just filling up and my glass is my own. Your glass is your own and everyone's glass is different. And that's the call that, that thing just started to overflow. And I think we talked for two or two and a half hours and talked about the, the, the little boy and my mentor and that glass has been a huge gift to me. And being mindful of my glass and and processing my thoughts, feelings, and emotion has allowed me to continue on and to continue to serve my people here and allow me to, to be viable and, and give back to my community. And I can't imagine not being able to do that. So I'm extremely grateful to, to those people for what they do. I, it, I I'm sad, I can't remember her name, so I could give her credit for giving me that gift, but I, I really, if she hears this, I
0: appreciate you, I do. Let's talk about that for a second. Cause you said the glass, they teach you about the glass. And they teach you that it's full and that anything you add to it is going to spill over, correct? Correct. Okay, you learn that, but what do you do with it at that point? So for me, in processing mine, it, it's really
1: been about where am I at? How am I feeling? and And like we spoke about before, if I'm not honest with myself about how I'm feeling and where I'm at, then, then I'm not going to be able to to truly gauge where my glass is. You know, the, it's thinking about and, and truly owning that and, and how it made you feel. So you, you don't just pour it in the glass and let it overflow. And for me, it's also been about finding outlets to pour my glass out. For me, yeah, my mindfulness, introspection, speaking with trusted friends. You know, other guys in the department and and having that openness and relationship to say, Hey man, I got one that's bothering me. Like this is bothering me. Writing, hunting, fishing. and, And if I found, if one really stuck me up, you know, I've got my father, and I know, is a, is a mental health professional and a psychiatrist, and I have a close enough relationship with him that I feel if I said, hey, I need to talk, that he would talk with me until he felt comfortable and refer me to someone or another resource to help me continue on. I don't know when the one will come and say, hey, maybe I need counseling. Maybe I need to get that. I'm I've not had any formal counseling and that's not to say I won't I'm not opposed to it I think I like many other people thought I could handle it on my own I'm 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 this strong tough guy and I can handle this and there's a time for my cheese and there's a time for being real and honest and when we realize that we're firemen aren't made of iron and the ladders aren't made of wood anymore then we can move forward and make sure everyone's okay and able to go out there and to continue to help our people because that's what we're here to do.
0: So we also talked about the impacts when you and I talked on the phone, we talked about what your impact, what the impacts were on you and your life. So out of these calls and these other things you've seen, what have the impacts been? At
1: times I found myself sometimes definitely dark humor. I don't think there's anyone in fire, EMS that, that, doesn't have kind of that dark sense of humor I think it's one of the things that we all pick up at least for myself normalizing death I, sometimes I feel the things we see have made me not immune to it but death becomes a more normal thing when you're sometimes we're we can't save anybody we're just the witness to the end and, and that feeling of just being the witness it makes it easy to at least in my eyes, normalized. Eye. Sometimes lashing out, being angry, little things setting you off that that let you s- slide the dial to 10. And if we're not mindful of those impacts, then your glass is going to overflow. It, just think of it as, as pouring water into that glass off of a 24-foot ladder. And instead of flowing gently into the glass like he held it to the our impacts magnify that drop in the glass. And I feel like the longer I go without allowing myself to process where I'm at, the, more, the higher up that ladder I get.
0: Yeah. Where are we today? Today, for me, I'm probably 6, 7. How, do you, how are you dealing with things today?
1: I know that I need to just take to take some time for me. Got it planned for Sunday. That's the day I'm gonna shoot for and I'm gonna go out and I'm just gonna enjoy being on my boat and being thankful for the things that I have, my family and my life and just enjoying the things around me. I put up a post the other day that I was driving and I had to go get something from the store and it was like the most mundane thing. It's like just Huge inconvenience. I'm going down the road and I'm looking, looking to the west, and I just see the sunset. And I'm like, man, that right there, that's it. I know where I need to go. I went. I've got a front spot out here on the river where I keep my boat, and just went down. And as corny as it sounds, brother, I went down and watched a sunset. And that's a place where I've always felt safe and and peaceful. And Being right there and just being in that moment and silencing everything else changed the total rest of the course of my day. And for me, forcing myself to just get out there and be in that place and in that moment and silence everything else is one of my most powerful
0: tools. You say that's corny. I. Just yesterday morning, before I started shift, everybody was gathered behind the rigs, and instead of me going and talking to everybody, I noticed that the sunrise was coming. And it was actually, for where we are, it was a beautiful sunrise, so I went out there and I took some pictures, and I enjoyed that for a second before I went in and met up with the crew. So I don't think that's corny at all. And for me, just that
1: that couple minutes there of solitude and just peace and You could see the reflection of the clouds and the sunset on the water and everything was still. And I'm like, man, this is just, it changed the course of my day. All the other stuff that I had going on, all the other noise that was happening in my brain, I just shut it off and just allowed myself to be in that moment and and to just be thankful for being here.
0: Yeah, it quiets it and it brings you a little bit of peace. That's it. Are you do you see any therapist today?
1: I am not, no.
0: Okay. I'm
1: not seeing anyone
0: currently. But you don't feel the need to, I'm assuming. No. No. And if I felt the need to, I feel confident saying I would
1: reach out and make that call. I haven't made that call before, if I felt like I needed a more I'm to say strenuous but a more in-depth help i feel
0: like i could make that i think that's powerful because it's for you then there's already a recognition of when you need it uh, absolutely and i think that's key for the rest of us i there i can only speak for myself it took me years to say okay i need it but now that i know i need it i know i need it and so i i am seeing a therapist and it does help so i i appreciate the fact that you're aware enough and
1: i'm glad you're taking that step that's it's important we need you we need me we need everybody else out there listening to be good because if we can't help ourselves how are we going to be able to help the people who are calling us for service
0: that's that might be the perfect place to wrap that up right there if we can't help ourselves how do we help others and we started this whole conversation you started off with stating we help that's what we do and I hope this helps anyone who hears it all right you know the questions i'm about to ask you i do what do we call the show the things we all carry and i one of the reasons i call it that is because we all carry something into a call whatever tool it is whatever bag it is whatever it is we carry into a to a call be it a fire be it a medical call but we also carry something out because each call leaves a mark on us some large some small some some you don't even notice for a while until your glass fills up as you said So what's an everyday carry for you outside of the fire department?
1: For me, ever since I've got it, I've been wearing my Skulls for Hope bracelet. If you're not, I know you're aware, but if the listeners out there aren't aware of Skulls for Hope and the things that they're doing, I highly encourage you to look into them and support them. It's a reminder for me, the skull on it. It obviously reminds me of the things we've seen, but it also reminds me that in that there's hope, and a lot of times we're that hope for those that we're called to serve and
0: I gotta be there i gotta be good for it and robert from skulls hope was a guest of mine on on one of the earlier podcasts and he in that podcast he explains where he got the idea for the skull and what it means and you can find that on episode two of the show so he was one of the first ones to actually speak to me so i will link to that i will link to his website in the show notes what's a give me a book what's a book do you want to suggest to people
1: for anyone who is considering the volunteer fire service or just helping their community. One of the things that one of the first books that, that I found that even had to do with it was Population 485 by Michael Perry. And this isn't a fire service text. This isn't, it's not brand Again on building construction. It's not Report from Engine Company 2 or 82 or Rescue Men or anything like that, anything else that I'm seeing here on my bookcase. But yeah, it's the true and pretty honest story of, of a guy who was a volunteer in New Auburn, Wisconsin, and among doing the things he was doing and was volunteering, and it brings it uh, brings it into a small town reference frame. And I, I always admired how he put the book, and for me, I would recommend that to anyone who's thinking about it.
0: Again, that's something I will link to in the show notes, and it'll be available, and people can take a look at it, and read it, and that's exactly why I asked for the book, because I want to get these resources out to people so they can learn from them. So I appreciate that. Yeah,
1: no, thank you, and uh, not to
0: not to self plug, but if
1: you know, I am on Instagram, I, I do post under the unpaid professional, and if anyone wants to follow me there, you're more than welcome to. Try to be positive and encouraging, and uplifting for the fire service and encourage volunteers to not be less than just because they're not being compensated with with money for what they're doing in most cases so encouraging guys to give their best and do their best
0: for their community that's what i'm doing there perfect so like you said it's instagram at the unpaid professional and i'll try and link that into the show notes as well so possibly people can give you a follow or even reach out to you and ask you some questions if they need to that would be great i appreciate your time kevin i know that uh, we've run into each other in, in at a concert and uh, we've run in we've talked to each other off and on throughout the time since then and i appreciate all the time that we've spent together and especially tonight so thank you very much stack thank
1: you and look anytime man hit me up anytime
0: thanks for listening to another episode of the things we all carry Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other.